as I've said, today we celebrate Father's Day to all those dads and granddads and the great granddads among us. All great, I'm sure. And also to those, importantly, who are spiritual dads, spiritual fathers in Christ, who've been part of mentoring and uh, guiding younger ones through life. I know I'm grateful for my own dad today, as I remember. He would have been 99 this week. Um, and I'm also thinking of some of those spiritual fathers in Christ who have nurtured me in the faith over the years, and it's good to remember them today too. But uh, families, who'd have them? As we think of family life today, we know that families can be the best and the worst of places to grow up in. And maybe as we reflect on our own families today and over the years, perhaps we have some good memories and perhaps some not so good ones, and we acknowledge that. I grew up in a family of four children, and I'm the youngest of the four siblings, so perhaps they, the others think, of course, my view's biased. Uh, the, and my two older brothers uh, could never work out why they had to do the breakfast dishes while I was allowed to do my piano practice, and I could never convince them that scales at that time of the morning were not exactly the most exciting thing either. E-flat minor was the one I seem to recall was awful. My mother would say she loved all us four children dearly, but there were some terrible combinations. And I can recall that we took turns staying at our uncle's farm when I was, I was about eight, I think, and I was mystified by the way that we were sorted out that children one and three or two and four would get to stay on the farm for a night, but never one and two or three and four. But now I can see full well the wisdom of my parents. And you can probably all tell similar stories of your own families, and we know what crucibles they are of learning to share and get along with others, to realise that gradually that we can't have the world all going our way all the time, and to learn how to negotiate and compromise and to give and take. And also families as places where we learn uh, slowly and often through a lifetime of how to work through conflict, how to say sorry, how to forgive and begin again over and over again. And we talk about the church family, and maybe that's where the problem starts. It's a lovely image, but we sometimes joke that the church would be all right if it wasn't for people. It would be fine if we were just a bunch of individuals, and I hope we're not heading that way, uh, each coming to worship God in their own little bubble or cubicle. But that is not what we're called to be together. As our gospel reminded us, Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. So Jesus is present among us when we gather together in his name. And we are made known as the body of Christ. And we model Jesus and his law of love for one another to a watching world. And that's pretty challenging, isn't it? And it's where it's not always so easy. I wonder if uh, any of you grew up in families where you had these sort of family mottos that were sort of reeled out and then you hear them, hear yourself saying them to your own children and think, oh my goodness. Um, one that was certainly part of my family, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. I can certainly recall that being said to me, probably with good reason. And I like the fridge magnet that I saw in a shop the other day. Lord, put your arm around my shoulder and your hand over my mouth. <laughs> a very useful prayer. 
But sometimes, actually, that don't say anything at all can become a requirement of silence within a family. And we learn that harmony is the most important thing, or even an illusion of harmony. And perhaps we don't feel safe or able to speak up to say when feelings have got hurt, or to express those feelings, or to sort out misunderstandings and to come to a place of reconciliation. And that can sometimes mean that hurts actually get buried and fester, and that communication ceases, that distance grows between us, and that relationships break down. And of course, we all know the consequences of that can often remain and grow over months and years and generations. I'm always a bit sad at funerals um, when we hear about different parts of the family who are not coming or who are not talking or who, oh, we're not sure, you know, who's going to be there. It's always very sad, I think, at such a time um, when there are those divisions within a family. And that, sadly, is often a reality in the church family, too. I sometimes, as perhaps you do, too, hear the stories uh, quite often at places like funerals or out in the supermarket sometimes, people who've stopped being part of church for a myriad of reasons. And they'll tell you their story, if they trust you enough. And one of those reasons might have been that they were annoyed by something um, or other one day. Or maybe um, they were upset by someone or other. Or maybe one of us clergy said something or did something, perhaps even unwittingly. And you may know of someone for whom that is the case, that is the story. And I think so often it's actually just being um, available to them to listen to them and to share with them and to invite them perhaps to fellowship with you and invite them perhaps to come back to church with you if you feel that's the right time. If it helps, perhaps to have a chat with one of us first um, if we need to get something sorted out so that we can be reconciled and begin again and move on together. I think we might be surprised, and I often find this, people are often quite wistful when they, when they say, oh, I'd, really, I'd really quite like to be back at church, but uh, they feel too hurt or perhaps proud or sheepish to do it on their own. And it's actually often really hard to cross that threshold again. And I think we can often be that go-between, uh, the one who keeps those relationships up and who walks alongside someone and who is the bridge builder to renewed relationship within the church family. I wonder if um, Jesus' instructions in that gospel reading about how to deal with conflict in the church family challenge you today, um, as they challenge me. Because we're often actually not that good in the church about resolving conflict and sorting things out with each other, keeping short accounts as the Bible calls us to do. Often I think when we feel upset or hurt by someone, we use other tactics, whether consciously or unconsciously. And sometimes we try and pretend that nothing's happened. And so we carry on in public as if things are fine, but quite often we bury our feelings, but they may still be sort of rumbling away underneath so that we can end up behaving awkwardly in someone's presence. And sometimes that leaves the other person trying to guess what on earth is wrong, not being quite able to work it out, particularly if they're not even aware, if they're blissfully unaware that they've hurt or upset us. Or other times we might give them the cold shoulder and we don't actually tell them what is wrong, but we make it quite clear that we're avoiding them or that we don't want to be on the same uh, team with them anymore 
or we don't uh, want to pass the peace with them when we're able to. And sometimes you see that sort of skirting around the room. Um, or we skirt around each other at morning tea. And we want them to figure out how they've upset us. We're not going to give them any help. Sometimes, well, we talk about games people play. But sometimes it's just often our experience has led us there. Other times we can say nothing to the person who's hurt us, but we can actually let our resentment and hurt rise up to the surface and sort of leak out all over the place elsewhere. So we just sort of let it slip over coffee what's happened. Or we tell someone else confidentially for prayer. We go everywhere else but to that person to sort it out. And perhaps we all do this at times. We say, and we are all human. Sometimes we feel so hurt that we just withdraw for a while um, to lick our wounds. And sometimes that is sadly the beginning of slipping away from church and fellowship. And we can decide it's too hard to stay, but then it gets harder and harder to come back and easier to stay away. It's hard stuff, isn't it? C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce, talked about hell. And he described hell as a vast grey city with people only living at the outer edges and with rows and rows of empty houses in the middle. And he said the houses are empty because everybody who lived in them has quarrelled with their neighbours and moved. And they've quarrelled with their new neighbours and moved again, leaving empty streets full of empty houses behind them. Everyone has chosen distance rather than the risk of sorting out conflict and starting again. And so Jesus, in our Gospel reading, says that is not the way it is to be in the church family, the body of Christ. Rather than putting distance between us, when we've been hurt by someone, Jesus asks us to go to them just quietly, one-on-one, and to talk about it. And that takes courage, doesn't it? Tell them how we are feeling and what we think is wrong. And part of that is being willing, actually, to admit that we might be in the wrong too, that perhaps we might have been oversensitive about something, or that we might have misinterpreted something that was said to us, or misheard. Um, As you know, I have a hearing loss, and sometimes I don't hear all the story, and so I may get the wrong end of the stick, and that can happen with all of us, particularly when things are noisy. We might need to ask ourselves some tough questions. Have I given the other person the benefit of the doubt? What are my motives in going to them? Do I just want to make them feel bad, actually? Or do I really want good for that person and the relationship restored? Am I concerned for who is right and who is wrong? Or is the relationship more important? Some of us, and I know with my German ancestry, um, part of this too, take a lifetime to learn that being right is less important than being in relationship. Being right is less important than being in relationship. And it's actually interesting, when you hear Jesus' instructions to the church, he doesn't actually seem that concerned about who's right and who's wrong. He doesn't actually deal with that in the story. He just wants to get the family back into relationship again and talking and listening to one another. It might help us to think, to sort of put the boot on the other foot if you like and think, how will I feel if someone comes to me concerned about something that I have said or done, perhaps unwittingly? 
How will I react? Will I sort of bluster and defend myself? Will I attack? It's so easy to do that, particularly if we're taken unawares. And what if they bring, as the Gospel says there, another person with them who backs them up and also agrees that perhaps it's me in the wrong? Will I actually pause and take this to heart and have a reflect about it? Or will I get on my high horse and accuse them of taking sides and go off and find my own allies and so escalate things into a split? One of the sad things I think about the Protestant churches is that we split and split and split and split. There are thousands of Protestant denominations and uh, it's one of the sad things when we cannot hold together and one of the things that grieves God's heart and our hearts too. What if I enlist one or two to support me when I approach someone else about an upset but then find that my supporters take their side or they agree that I'm the one that's misunderstood things or that the other person didn't mean to upset me and were totally oblivious to the fact that they had? And what if they suggest a compromise or a solution where we both have to give way a bit? For some of us, that's not easy to do. And will I be willing to do that? It is challenging, isn't it? And it's part of the grace of the body of Christ at work together. It doesn't all happen easily, and I think it goes on happening forever. How do we deal with Jesus saying to us, if the offender won't listen to you, or one or two others, or even the church, then treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector? Just what does that mean? Aha, we think we're let off the hook. They are rightly ostracized and outcast or excommunicated, as we used to say. We don't have to bother with them anymore. But let's remember, actually, that constantly we hear in Matthew's Gospel of Jesus reaching out to those who are the Gentiles and reaching out to those who are the tax collectors. Even to Matthew himself, who wrote these words. Matthew was a tax collector, so he knew what it was to have Jesus reach out to him and not to ostracize him, not to put the distance between him. So this is actually not a let-out clause at all. It's actually an encouragement to us never to give up, just as God never gives up on us, and to keep that reaching out. Jesus is saying we need to show as much love and care and mercy and reaching out and seeking to bring others back into the family as Jesus does with us, even if they're the one who's hurt us. And there's a real challenge and a real cost in that. And we can think that is just too hard, too costly, too much risk. But Jesus reminds us that our earthly actions have heavenly consequences. This is holy ground. This is sacred stuff. And Jesus promises us that in those costly conversations where we try to sort out tough stuff and disagreements and hurts and upsets within our families and within our family church life, that he will be there with us where two or three are gathered, where two are there having a conversation, where two or three are having a conversation. Jesus is there with us to strengthen us, to heal us, to reconcile, to unite, to be there for us. And I think that's what gives me hope 
when it's hard, when it's not easy, both within our own families and within our church family. So let's honour that among us. Let's commit to that. Let's also know that Jesus promises to be with us as the one who is the chief reconciler, the one who reconciles us with God and keeps us in God's love. Amen.